0: Good evening to you all. When I was considering this evening's topic, I had an image come to mind, and it was quite specific. And I thought, hmm, yes, this seems like this would perhaps be an image of the topic at hand. And then I uh, had the follow-on thought, I wonder if I've heard this someplace else. It unfolded quite easily. Is this perhaps an inadvertent borrowing? And then I thought, well, you know, Dharma's not copyright. (laughs) But anyway, I think it's probably uh, a creation of my own mind stream, but perhaps not. So imagine you were in the woods and you desired to create a source of light so that you could see what was around you. And assume that you have seen someone create a fire from scratch out of nothing or perhaps you've seen a video of this of someone actually doing it so you decide you're going to undertake this activity for yourself so you would start by taking some small dry shavings or perhaps some very small twigs or pieces of wood and you would pile them carefully in a little pile and then the next thing that you would do is you would you would look for something that could create some heat, something that could actually move in the direction of spontaneous combustion. So my uh, my uh, manual aid here for this principle is this. Ever see this version? Right, the point of the stick is in the pile, and then the person doing this is very industrious. Keeps doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. Building up speed, building up speed. And the idea is at the point of this, at some point, there's enough friction, which causes heat, which can lead to combustion, can lead to actually the fire just beginning to catch hold. But because, of course, it's a a fragile kind of thing, you would want to be prepared and looking around for your next. Uh, bits to put on the fire. But you would have to do it carefully, right? Because this fire at this point is a very fragile kind of expression. So you would need to be careful about what size of thing you put on it and you wouldn't want to like dump a whole bunch of stuff on it, smother it. But you would want to have something there and ready, something that's appropriate in size and you would want to carefully place it. And then as this uh, fire started to catch hold you would want to add more to it so it doesn't burn itself out. So you would be looking around for some bigger pieces to put on the fire to add to the combustible materials that were there. But you would still want to be doing that with some care. But at a certain point, it would catch and you would lose at least the immediate fear of it going out completely. So you would be able to move with a little bit more consideration, adding things to it until it became established. It became a thing in and of itself that only needed intermittent maintenance. And a fire then of this size actually would have the capacity to cast some light, would provide the ability to see what's around it. In a certain kind of sense, it would almost move in the direction of becoming self-sustaining, where you would only intermittently have to take up a piece of wood and you know, redirect it or bring, toss something else on it. But it would be going and there would be light. There would be the ability to see the area around you and actually learn what's there. So you would have accomplished your intention when you started right there at the beginning with just the idea of how it might be done based on what you had seen and heard about before. And then you made your own effort, you ran your own experiment. So this image came to mind when I was thinking about the five spiritual faculties. And this word "faculty" in English is uh, an interesting one, so sometimes, for instance, you'll you'll hear someone just say, "Oh, you know he's he's losing his faculties or which is a, another way of saying he he's starting to." really decline, he can't hold it together, he doesn't understand what's going on around him. But faculties, in the way that they're used here, are pointing in the direction of particular assets or qualities of mind that are intrinsic in a well-functioning human being. And the idea is that these naturally existing qualities or attributes or talents, however you want to look at it, are things which, if turned to Dharma practice and utilized as resources, are very much part of the expression of how practice unfolds so these qualities when developed in a balanced kind of way support the path to awakening and when these five particular qualities become very strong they're actually called powers of mind or bala b-a-l-a which means they're so strong they're uh, they cannot (coughs) be suppressed or overrun or overwhelmed by their opposites. So let's talk about what these five are, about the relationship between them and the balance that needs to be uh, kept in relationship of one to another and how this all comes into play in practice, the practice opening and developing. So generally these unfold in a sequential way. As we saw with the image of starting the fire, there needs to be a beginning point. right? It doesn't arise out of nothing. So there needs to be some basic raw material right there at the beginning and that initial raw material is faith otherwise called sadha. So, without faith, there can be no effort. And without there being effort, there cannot be mindfulness. Now, this word faith for many of us in the West is quite a loaded word. So, we may have the idea that what's being called for, for instance, is that we be uh, dogmatic or uh, pre-modern, unscientific, uh, just believe a bunch of things because somebody told us they're true and we're deferring to their authority. But the understanding of this word in Buddhism is quite Different, and you can see the line of the the different emphasis by looking at the biography of the founder of the school of thought and philosophy. So, the Buddha, if you know anything about his his biography, initially mastered the concentration practices that were available in his time. And then having mastered those concentration practices, had the intellectual honesty to realize that the job wasn't done, that he still experienced suffering, that he felt that he really hadn't gotten to the bottom of what was involved in the creation of this uh, suffering, this dukkha. And so he, he went through a, pra- a period of practicing austerities, You know the idea that was prevalent in the time that you could sort of torture your body into you know, releasing your spirit and then you would be free from everything. And he decided after experimentation that that wasn't true, that that wasn't a right approach either. And then with those two initial investigations, completed, he took the resources that he had actually developed through that process and turned them instead to a start from the beginning, start from the immediate empirical investigation of what is going on. How do things actually work? And he, he started with this interest in what am I actually experiencing? Like right now, what can I see? What can I perceive? What can I immediately and directly know? What's happening right now? What is it? What is it? Which is another way of saying mindfulness. But he was very rigorous in sticking to the truth of what he could immediately and directly know for himself. So this kind of insistence on it being seeable, it being perceivable, of following the investigation right into all of the six sense doors in an unremitting kind of way, gives you an idea about what's being talked about when I say the first of the five spiritual faculties is faith. It's not a belief in anything. But it's really more akin to um, confidence in ourselves that, yeah, maybe coming becoming uh, enlightened is not exactly like learning how to start a fire from a video. But there certainly is information in the form of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path that tell you what the process is. Tells you very specifically what it is you need to understand, what it is you need to do in order to, and this is the second part of the the faith understanding in Buddhism, run your own experiment (laughs) to actually see for yourself. When you undertake a parallel experiment to the Buddha's, What do you see? What do you notice? What do you understand? What effect does this investigation have on your mind stream? Same or different? See for yourself. Eke paso, the Buddha would often say, which basically means, come and see. Check it out. See for yourself. Run the experiment. Do it yourself. And this is the kind of faith that's being talked about. And this faith, this sadha, is both aspirational and inspirational. Meaning, if we are grounded in faith, it gives us the motivation to actually try it. The confidence to actually try it. So upon reflection you can see why this kind of faith is actually necessary in the practice. Because to awaken requires that we undertake the effort to overcome the forces of delusion in the mind. So there has to be a kind of baseline confidence, however tentative, in order to make this kind of effort. So you can see why the initial image that I used was somebody deciding to try to start a fire by gathering these initial small shavings for combustion. So this faith can start small, but it has to be present in order for things to catch hold. It's the first thing that needs to be there. So the second quality... Uh, of these five factors is effort or energy, also called virya. So the quality of energy is what actually provides the momentum to begin and sustain the process of investigation, which leads to liberation. So this is another word that's very often laden for us in the West. When I was uh, teaching a retreat recently, I did a talk on wise effort and I decided it would be kind of interesting just to ask the people who are on this 10-day retreat, which is a pretty large retreat, what their actual associations were with this word effort. When you're encouraged to make effort what are your associations? So that's like the immediate association that comes up for you. And it was really interesting to, s- to hear the many different associations that were there that were kind of along the line of got to try really hard, uh, you know, grim, uh, you know, sacrificial, uh, you know, really gave the idea of, you know, grinding the gears, you know what I mean? Like, And this is the way that we can understand this. Like what's being called for is some kind of uh, burnout, self-immolation to make something happen. But that's really not right. And in fact, that kind of way of making effort can't be right. It's out of balance. So what's actually being called for is what you might consider to be a Full-hearted integrity of effort. Now that feels a little different, doesn't it? Full-hearted integrity of effort. So you can see the flexibility in there. At any given time it might be skillful or necessary or helpful to really pour it on, to push yourself, to do longer sittings, to stay up later. You know, to really, really close and focus um, the practice. But at other points, that could be completely counterproductive and unskillful. What might be skillful then would be perhaps to be receptive, to to back off, to open the field of awareness. So if we're going to answer the question what is skillful effort we'd say it's fully committed and sensitive to the totality of the circumstances it's an application along the line of practice it's a full-hearted integrity of effort along the line of practice that's what wise effort is So we know, for instance, if, if you know anything about the Eightfold Path and how wise effort is often described there, we would say, well, it, it's applied to the four great endeavors. This is the line of practice. The four great endeavors, Well, which is another way of saying, well, overall, what is it that we're trying to do? Prevent the uh, arising of unwholesome states not yet there, Abandon them, these unwholesome states if they are there. Arouse wholesome states if they're not yet there. Abandon, maintain and strengthen wholesome states already arisen. And when this word wholesome, this is another one of these words that can get our little heads buzzing. It's kind of a white bread word in a certain kind of way. But what wholesome really means is States of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Unwholesome means states of greed, hatred, and delusion. So a basic assumption is we're not wanting to stimulate or increase our sources of suffering. Instead, we want to stimulate and increase the sources of, uh, and expressions of a liberated mind. So in practical terms, this line of effort means... In, in meditation largely means mindfulness and the establishment of mindfulness and dealing wisely with the hindrances to concentration when they come up. So here to go back to the image of creating the fire, this is the the spinning of the stick in order to generate heat enough for the fire to start to catch. right? This is the initial application the initial implementation of the faith, which is there as the first step. The third of these five factors then is mindfulness or sati. The application of effort has been made in order to experience what's present in an aware and wise way. and mindfulness is the essential the essential quality in insight practice and it's really a lead and central quality in all of buddhist practice and there are a lot of different reasons for that but basically it's if our empirical direct understanding which ripens into wisdom is how liberation is found, then in order to be able to be present, to observe, to actually experience things as they are, there has to be mindfulness. It is the key, it's the core quality. So, it takes effort to be mindful, in a sense. And the effort that it takes to be mindful is to remember to be mindful. Awareness happens all on its own, right? So it's not like we're manufacturing mindfulness. It's more a question of us learning to recognize mindfulness when it's present and when we we become aware of the fact that we're not mindful, we're not present, having... Uh, the discipline, the renunciation, the full-hearted integrity of effort to invite its return. And to continue to do this no matter how many times that we forget. So our conditioned mental habits of forgetfulness, of being lost in the past and future, of papancha, of... Uh, absorption in the hindrances the five hindrances of sense desire ill will sloth and torpor restlessness and worry and doubt these are strong habits but we train the mind to let go of its deluded complexification and to rest in this simple and vibrant knowing which is mindfulness with mindfulness then we come into connection with our immediate experience allowing it to be as it is and in the process of learning to do this of course we see and eventually give up the struggle to make things be different than how they are in the immediate sense so we come into a kind of non-resistant connection with the mind stream as it unfolds, as it moves, as it changes. And by seeing things in this kind of way, we break free from the hindrances to clear perception. So if we're going to go back to our image of the fire, we'd say establishing mindfulness is like attending to what's happening as the fire starts to catch, adjusting the effort as is appropriate Remembering that the goal is the emergence of the flame of awareness. And that's what we're trying to do. To connect and see. To give up the struggle. Allowing the the energy that went to manipulation previously to go to observation. Easier said than done, huh? So the the fourth of these is concentration, also called samadhi. And one way to understand concentration is it's a kind of emergent state. So it arises from continuity of mindfulness. When mindfulness is sustained, then the capacity of the mind to observe and the mind itself becomes stable. So the, the system starts to lose its wobble. It's less on, off, on, off, on, off with the knowing, not knowing. When it goes away, it goes away less. So the hindrances tend to be more suppressed when the concentration piece is starting to open. There's fewer breaks and less distractions. With a stable mind, the mind becomes more capable of focusing on what it wants to focus on at will and on sustaining attention to what it is choosing to attend to. So then part of what happens is there's greater ease and pliancy in the mind. And that seems to feed back in a virtuous kind of way. So greater faith arises, you start to get this sense of, oh, okay, I'm learning. Or the system is learning. It's starting to make sense. Some of these things that I've heard about, I'm starting to experience them. And with that comes the arising of and strengthening of faith. And then again, the strengthening of the effort that comes from faith. And then the establishment of greater mindfulness. And then more concentration. So you can see uh, how these factors work together. And how a virtuous cycle can be established in how they condition each other in the direction of liberation. Mm -hmm. So concentration is, is developed in insight practice by orienting the mind towards the ongoing seeing of the three characteristics of existence, the three marks of all conditioned things, their impermanence, And because of their impermanence, their unreliability. And their nature of not having a self or not being a self. And when the mind starts to be able to generalize its seeing of this, it starts to get the picture that this is always true. And it comes to this understanding experientially then this starts to to allow the arising of wisdom when this understanding of impermanence unreliability and not self is seen over and over and over again at increasing depths the door to wisdom opens so in our image this concentration is like adding additional materials to the fire, supporting it taking hold. When it's fed skillfully, it starts to have an integrity of its own, and it's not easily blown out. Starts to draft, bringing into the flames the oxygen it needs to continue. You know, just like a chimney can help a fire draft once it reaches a particular temperature, it actually sorts starts to support the flames rising more directly and faster and stronger up, up through the, the chimney. Concentration is like that as well. So the last of these five spiritual faculties is wisdom, panya. And a way to understand wisdom is that it is clarity about cause and effect. And it understands things in the context of wise view. So it understands things in the context of the four noble truths. And of course there are a lot of different ways that we can cultivate wisdom. There's what we're doing tonight, which is giving and listening to a Dharma talk. There is reading. That's one level of it, hearing hearing the Dharma, hearing the teachings. Then the next level of that, of course, is starting to come to some internal understanding, at least in theory, about what's being talked about. In other words, being able to say it back in your own words. You know, what are the Four Noble Truths? What what are the seven factors uh, of awakening? What What is mindfulness? All necessary, all part of this empirical investigation that the Buddha encourages us towards but really the last piece of it or the power piece of this cultivation of wisdom is this direct experience for ourselves the clear seeing for ourselves in meditation so it involves more than book learning and it involves more than reasoning or scholarship or those kinds of things so those though those are important pieces as well. But we're talking about wisdom born from direct seeing, from connection with experience at the six sense doors. And this kind of wisdom is both self-teaching and self-confirming because it emerges from a direct contact with reality, which has been purified by the establishment of a deep and continuous mindfulness. So this process of mindfulness meditation is often discussed in terms of being purification of mind. So what does that mean purification of mind what what's being talked about there? It's talking about purifying the mind from the defilements and the hindrances. But on a more fundamental level, it's talking about the purification of mind from its own delusion. By requiring the mind or asking the system to, in a moment-by-moment way, actually get into c- connection, immediate, direct, wise, aware connection with what it's experiencing, and just stay there. What are you, what are you experiencing now? No, that's the past and that's the future. Now, what are you experiencing now? And that sensation that you had, what was that like? No, that, that's an image or a metaphor for it. But the actual experiential uh, thing, what was it like? On its most basic level. And that feeling of desire that was present, was that in the mind or was that in the body? And as you attended to that, did that get stronger or did that get weaker? And there w- was there judgment of that? What was the mind's attitude towards that experience, right? This is all part of the coaching of the mind to learn to be able to take the seat of mindfulness in relationship to its experience and stay there. Because it's in the staying there that it starts to get the idea <laughs> it starts to be able to connect with reality. So this kind of wisdom sees things in depth, in detail, and then it understands. And this is really what liberates the mind, not hearsay. So to our fire image again. This wisdom is like the illumination of the area about the flames themselves, right? But it's more than just being able to see the flames and around the flames. It's also clarity about how the fire started, what went into developing it, and how to maintain it. And so it's another way of saying it's knowledge about the big picture and of the role of various causes and conditions within that. So you could say that this wisdom emerges from the skillful process of engagement with the other spiritual faculties as they emerge one by one. So that's how things go. That's what actually happens if practice stays on track. But of course this path can be tricky. (laughs) You may have noticed this for yourself. So there are many obstacles that aren't necessarily visible to us because our minds are clouded by delusion, often. So there can be disruptions of this process of the spiritual faculties coming online and strengthening each other. Or they might be online, but there's an imbalance uh. uh within the the five, causing the practice to go sideways and keeping it from its full potential. So I'll give you some examples of these these things. So uh, faith. So sometimes there's an internal roadblock that can keep people from being able to commit to really running the experiment. So that's one way that uh, faith can be challenged, so then it's really hard to mobilize the effort if you don't have, you know, some little pile of shavings to to start with. So that would need to be overcome. Or there's another kind of thing that can kind of go awry with faith, which is. There can be too much of the wrong kind of it. Sort of like, oh yeah, it's so wonderful. The Buddha, it's all wonderful, all oh, wonderful. But no groundedness, no real connection with experience. This Where the system gets kind of too high, isn't really able to settle down and actually see what's happening from moment to moment. So it's a state that's not conducive to wisdom. Or it could be blind faith in a particular teacher or style of practice. So, you know, doubt can be something that uh, has to be overcome in order to establish faith. Or there has to be a tuning down of too much ungrounded exhilaration if there is too much of this particular quality. So another uh, challenge to uh, the emergence of balance with these uh, faculties could be effort complexifications. So there could be too much effort where the person gets tight and tense and kind of wears down the whole system, turns it into a grim uh, duty that has no joy in it, that's really, that's no way to go about liberating your mind. Let's make it a grim duty. Not that there isn't dukkha in it, right? Because you're kind of doing a dukkha study, but you know, you don't want to like tip it that way if you have a choice. Or perhaps there can be too little effort, which results in mindfulness being weak and the hindrance is strong. Or there could be a confusion about what effort really is with there being a lot of wasted motion or struggle when what's happening doesn't match up to some mental image or picture of what we think should be happening. So, for instance, a, an example of unskillful effort usually is to try to conform your immediate experience to some uh, story that you've heard um, or some map that uh, you've read about that you think you should be able to reproduce right now because that would be able to save you a lot of time. Well, run the experiment if you must, but I think you'll find that that, that's a bit... mm. Or another energy imbalance would be uh, too much energy relative to mindfulness so, the mind actually can't settle. It, it's kind of bong, bong, bonging around. <clears throat> it can't uh, be receptive because it uh, is kind of ricocheting from one thing to another. Now, in the area of mindfulness, the faculty of mindfulness, this very important one the system might not understand that what's being called for is actually a real-time, present-tense activity. So this, again, is the learning and the coaching to get below the level of concepts and get grounded. Or you could have an idea that's got some truth in it, but it's too narrow, like might have the understanding that it's all about sitting on a cushion and attending to the nostrils and that's it. Not that that's not a very useful style of practice, but there's a point to it, right? There's a point to (laughs) these techniques or these meditation instructions or these ways of orienting uh, the mind to particular views. So they're not uh, like sacred rituals or anything. They're purposeful. They're particular uh, intentions uh, related to cause and effect involved with all of these practice styles. And, and those of you who have been around uh, the practice scene for a while have seen the coming and going of various cycles of... Practice, you know, some cycles that really emphasize effort and, uh, you know, with lots of noting and, you know, little sleep and great deal of striving and, you know, focusing at the nostrils and, right, working in that kind of uh, viria-heavy way. And yet there can be very skillful sets of instructions that are at the whole other end of the spectrum, That really talk in terms of receptivity and allowing and connecting and not focusing on anything in particular, just letting whatever is there be what's known, and right? So you may go, well, which one is right? I'm not going to tell you. It depends. <laughs> right? And that's the wisdom factor, right? The wisdom that understands not only how you started the fire, but why you would want the, the fire and what's involved with starting the fire and you know, what you need to add at what point or another. That's the big picture Understanding. So, for instance, the more receptive, relaxed style talks a lot about the attitude of mind towards what's being experienced. So it's really suggesting that the mind uh, be doing a frequent mindfulness check to see if the awareness that's being brought to experience is actually mindfulness. Or is it some hindrance that's due in the practice, but isn't being seen. Subtle. What's the attitude of mind towards the experience? I'm at the nostrils and I'm hanging on grimly with aversion towards the breaking in of any sound. That's probably not mindfulness that's right there at the nostrils right in that moment. Just guessing. It has something to do with that other piece about grimly hanging on with aversion towards the breaking in of any sound. So mindfulness confusion. Concentration, some some of the the issues in this area could be wanting to go for concentration because of its pleasantness. Right? So a kind of corruption of motivation. <laughs> Right there, starting into the practice, right? Or I, I, I saw uh, a lecture recently uh, that was talking about working with concentration, and one of the refrains was, It's a party! It's a party! It's such a party! <laughs> and I thought, Hmm, okay, parte. It's a party. I want, I want to experience some of those states that I've heard about where, you know, it can be like this or it can be like that. Yes, and those, those states uh, do arise when the causes and conditions are present. You, there can be tremendously deep experiences of tranquility and contentment. The mind can develop crystalline clarity, deep, deep joy these are all things that are real they actually do arise and pass away and the mind of uh, wisdom would say yes these are lovely and even wholesome conditioned states that's not the end and, of course, if, you know, concentration outweighs energy, then um, the mind can really tip towards dullness and unawareness. So that concentration and energy really have to be kept in wise balance. Otherwise, there's not going to be any capacity to see the three characteristics. And, as I said earlier, that's really what's liberative. That's what leads to wisdom. Wisdom. Um Wisdom can have uh, some issues too. Like I said, it's, it's emergent on the other four arising in a balanced way and in strength. So if, if there, that doesn't happen, then there's really not the platform for Panya to arise in the mind. You know, we can sometimes have the idea that that borrowed knowledge is enough, but it's not. It's useful. It can be the preliminary opening into investigation. But in and of itself, uh, at least for most of us, it, it's probably not going to be how the mind uh, opens on the kind of deep level that I'm talking about. There's a way that we can kind of use our dharma knowledge and our understanding, our study, almost as a uh, diversion from real practice, you know? Keeping it at that level, but really never letting it descend into the heart level, into the level of transformation, where we've really in a certain kind of way kept our whole system out of this process of, of engagement and have substituted instead something else that is, is useful, but it, which isn't going to carry us the whole way. So those are the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, effort, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And now you know why there are teacher-student meetings. (laughs) Right? So, you know, one of the main things that goes on with the teacher-student meetings is, you know, in addition to the opportunity for, to meet you <laughs> and actually <laughs> see who you are <laughs> a little bit close up. It also helps us to understand us being the people who are doing the teacher seat at the moment, all of whom are also uh, students. But it allows us to understand what you're actually doing So you've probably noticed, at least in the conversations that I've had with you, I tend to ask a lot of questions. So it might be because, you know, I'm intrinsically nosy, but um, I really want to feel like I understand what what you're doing. So I want to understand what the practices that you're doing, what practice you're here to do and what practices you're doing. And I want to understand what set of practice instructions you're using. So I'll ask you things like, well, you, you say, well, you know, I'm working with the breath. And I'll, and I'll say, well, how? How are you working with the breath? Where is it at? Are you like focusing at a particular place? Are you, is it the breath in the whole body? Is it the breath to the exclusion of other objects? Is it at the nostrils? Is it, is it at the abdomen? You know, do you give it up when something stronger arises? Or are you, do you stick with the breath? And what are you doing? So this is part of of hearing about what you're experiencing in practice and exploring with you what you're noticing. So there's nothing like a good, you know, juicy hindrance or series of hindrances to come into the interview with and talk about or practice questions that have come up in the course of doing the practice or concepts that have arisen uh, in the mind, or questions about, you know, what it means, or how to interpret it, or, or all the rest of it. These, these are all part of our, our interaction during the meetings that we have. So that allows us to fulfill our role of offering feedback and support and context uh, to you to help your practice continue to open. So in a certain kind of way, what we're doing together, the teacher and the student, is we are actually performing a two-person practice of investigation, which is the second factor of awakening. It follows mindfulness uh, as uh, the second of the seven factors of mind that... um, lead us through the practice of moving towards liberation. So that's at least a partial lowdown on what's going on in the meetings together, in the cultivation of the five faculties, of what they what they are, how they open, how they relate to each other, uh, what some of the uh, issues are uh, with some of them that that could uh, need refinement, how they open one from another. and as I said earlier in the talk, you know the Buddha was an empiricist he was interested in the cause and effect so it's very common in his teachings to have these kinds of lists of these five things lead to this, or this thing happens and this thing happens and this thing happens, or like the, the key thing to notice or understand about this particular phenomenon is, is this place right here. For instance, the, the arising of uh, pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant mental reaction to a sense contact. All his teachings are very purposeful pointings. There's nothing random in how he describes things, because if you look at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all the supplemental teachings, they're all intentionally and deliberately oriented towards telling you what you need to understand in order to liberate your own mind. So, I offer these teachings tonight in a spirit of uh, great gratitude to the historical uh, Buddha who ran the great experiment. So, let's just sit for a moment.